This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 14th, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. The military-industrial complex was identified by President Eisenhower 50 years ago next week. What has happened since then? Susan Eisenhower is president of the Eisenhower Group consulting firm and an expert on international security. She is also the granddaughter of President Eisenhower. We spoke following a Cato Institute event on the military-industrial complex held yesterday. What does it mean to have somebody, a general and then president, more importantly commander-in-chief, make this call regarding the uh, military-industrial complex 50 years ago? Well, first of all, Eisenhower's farewell address was really uh, his leave-taking after more than 50 years of public service. Um, And in doing so, I think he picked up many of the themes he had uh, continued to articulate in his eight years as president. Uh, The most important, of course, was the uh, connection between uh, our fiscal and economic health in this country um, and our national security. And he regarded our fiscal health as being one of the pillars, along with our military capability, of national defense. And so in looking at the farewell address, he singled out this new and growing trend, that is the uh, combination of forces that made up a military-industrial complex. And he talked about uh, the potential, uh, whether sought or unsought, uh, of uh, unwarranted influence in the democratic process. Uh, I think he was concerned about this clearly because of – the uh, military industry and, um, you know, members of the complex uh, lobbying the federal government for um, weapon systems and um, uh, a posture or profile that uh, uh, is uh, – would have been um, inappropriately exaggerated for uh, the, the mission at hand. Um, This was, of course, we have to remember the 1950s were a resource-constrained period. Uh, There was growing prosperity in America, Um, but it, you know, we had to keep um, military spending under control uh, to uh, avoid swamping a rather aggressive modernization effort in this country to uh, rise to the challenge of being a a global leader for the first time uh, and to modernize our infrastructure. So, you know, he was calling for a balance in and among national programs um, as a way to mitigate an exaggerated emphasis um, on uh, one piece of national security. Um, I think this idea of um, uh, our economic uh, strength as being a pillar of our defense posture is, is an idea whose time has come. Uh, we, we cannot uh, defend ourselves. Many economists or people who study study this issue, Robert Higgs among them, have, have said the military-industrial complex, maybe it's not the best term. Military-industrial-congressional complex, uh, maybe. One of the panelists pointed out that um, before the end of the Cold War, uh, veterans in Congress represented a, high no- a, a relatively high number. Now they represent a relatively low number. And those members of Congress who are not veterans are more likely to vote for uh, these kinds of uh, engagements, uh, impositions, interventions uh, than their military-serving counterparts. We have two pieces of this congressional aspect. Uh, First of all, I think in the original draft, and and remember uh, that there was a team of speech writers working on Um, a a basic set of concepts and even phraseology that the president himself um, had um, 
instructed them to tackle. Uh, but I think in the original speech, it, military, industrial, congressional complex in the original draft, I should say, uh, did appear. Now, the president put bipartisanship as a higher value here. I think that was one of the reasons for taking it out. Secondly, he was trying to describe um, a, a trend line um, of a permanent armament industry um, and probably thought at the end of the day that military um, industrial complex was a more apt way to describe uh, the interaction um, for the question at hand. But clearly, um, this complex's relationship with Congress um, has been a vital component of this concept. Um, with respect to the number of members of Congress who are veterans, uh, of course, in the 1950s, um, most of them, virtually all of them, had served uh, in World War II. Uh, today, of course, the people who sit in Congress um, have are probably at an age where uh, a voluntary military had already um, come into force. Uh, you would get some of the um, older boomers who had been drafted, no doubt, during Vietnam, but that probably accounts for the small uh, number of veterans still left. Uh, and it, it does. I, I think uh, the point was made today, but we've certainly all seen it, that people who've served in the military tend to be um, much more realistic about uh, what military force can accomplish, uh, much more realistic about the um, glorified aspects of uh, military life, um, tend to be more skeptical about um, you know, the doability of uh, military operations as they operate in isolation. Um, and so you know, we do uh, have a, uh, a danger here uh, these days uh, that there's a kind of um, romanticized version um, of this whole area that um, tends to be um, tied with patriotism and other very potent um, uh, realist, I mean, very potent emotions. Um, and so um, I think the Eisenhower notion that the military is a blunt instrument and it can only accomplish certain things is critically important. We have to realize that our power emanates not just from our military capability, but by, from many other sources as well. I'm sure you, you followed uh, President Obama's struggle with the, the military uh, leadership in the United States in these last uh, two years, the first two years of his presidency, and uh, what a difficult time right. he had attempting to draw down uh, in Afghanistan uh, behind closed doors. Uh, in public, we sort of just saw uh, rhetorical changes in, in the way that he presented things. It went from uh, al-Qaeda to terrorists and their allies to um, essentially a doubling down in Afghanistan. And having it revealed later about this, this difficulty, um, having the president's employees do what the commander-in-chief was asking of them, uh, is is should be particularly troubling. How do you react? Well, I, I must say the whole thing is particularly troubling to me. I think uh, I, I, I'm particularly fond of that old adage, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. I'm not still sure I understand 
um, how our uh, mission in Afghanistan would be described. What, what does victory look like? When do we decide that we have done enough and accomplished enough to uh, be able to draw down? So I think full clarity for the American people is absolutely critical here. With respect to President Obama's struggle in this regard, I, I you know, my heart goes out to him in a sense. This is tough. This is what makes Washington, D.C., tough. Everybody here is smart. They, they're analytically uh, brilliant, most people, uh, because those sorts of people are attracted to this city. Um, and they've got opinions, and they've got constituencies, and it's tough. But, you know, at the end of the day, Barack Obama was elected president. Everybody, um, uh, he is commander-in-chief. People work for him. And uh, whether it's Barack Obama or any other president of the United States, I think it is critically important uh, for uh, more concern to revolve around um, the president's judgment than around politics. But everything's become so political. And I guess this takes us back to uh, the Eisenhower years. I mean, it's a rather remarkable thing that uh, um, the Suez crisis came up just before um, uh, the election for um, Eisenhower's second term. And within weeks of the election, uh, we, we mobilized forces against, against our allies, uh, uh, Britain and France and Israel and the Middle East, within weeks of an upcoming election. Uh, I can tell you that um, uh, he, uh, Dwight Eisenhower apparently said to um, John Eisenhower, his son, my father, uh, he says, well, I guess I'll just lose the election. Um, I think anybody serving today with the kind of transformational change that's required in this country, um, doesn't matter whether it's a Democrat or Republican, whoever wants this job is going to have to uh, really serve the American people and let the political chips fall where they may. We've got a certain amount of time to pull certain things out. And um, if, if the attention is always given to polling and what this side says and that side says, we're, we're not going to get the leadership we need. The Tea Party movement has brought a, a, a big group of people uh, bound by their concern about debt, federal spending, uh, the sustainability of, uh, of maintaining high levels of debt and spending and things like that. But they do sort of carve out this exception uh, for the military. And it's just now that, that the, the, the um, narrative of we have to put uh, the military on the table here. Yes. What would you say to these new members of Congress who are, are being brought in on this wave of Tea Party popularity about military spending, the sustainability of that spending, and, and our national... Have, uh, I don't know how much I have in common with the Tea Party because, quite frankly, I don't know who the Tea Party really is, and I don't know who really heads it or who runs it or anything else. But I will say this. They have provided a very valuable service to this country in this respect. They have changed the conversation. And that means whenever a conversation has been changed, that creates some political fluidity and it gives us an opportunity to rethink fundamental ideas. I think it's rather refreshing that they say uh, that military spending has to be on the table. Everything has to be on the table. And our funding decisions have to be driven by, A, a commitment to assigning some national priorities, and, B, a commitment uh, to funding programs based on a national strategy. We have to figure out what we need to do to retain you know, our economic uh, leadership in the world and to uh, retain our um, moral authority in the world and, and um, uh, 
uh, our national security objectives, and we should have a strategy for each of those and the, the funding that we uh, uh, deploy for those purposes ought to be directly related to this strategy. That's the way businesses run. It's the way um, sound organizations run, and our government should be no exception to that. Susan Eisenhower is president of the Eisenhower Group consulting firm and an expert on international security. We spoke following the Cato Institute's event, The Military Industrial Complex at 50. You could listen to or watch a recording of the event at Cato.org.